Now, it's interesting to me because this holiday, this is the 246th anniversary of the founding of our nation, but it comes at a time when our faith, I think, is shaken in our nation and shaken in our country. Um, the shine is kind of off the apple right now, if you want to take a look at it that way. We've got so many problems and so many issues that continue to roil us. I feel like we can't catch our breath. For two and a half years, we've been hit by one thing after another, and these last two to three weeks have been no exception. Just one thing after another keeps hitting us, and you just think, what more can come? You know, How much more can we be affected and divided and all these things? And there are voices that have been speaking for decades but are getting louder now that are starting to condemn the United States or have been condemning the United States as an evil country you know, that was founded on slavery and genocide and on the backs of people of color. And so all of these issues that are being raised are affecting the way that we approach 4th of July, I think. And we have to come to grips with this. We have to reconcile this in some way. And I think maybe one of the ways to do that is to paraphrase Winston Churchill that the United States is the worst country ever devised by humankind, except for all the other ones. <laughs> he said that about democracy, but I think we can paraphrase here and say, yeah, you know, the United States is a mixed bag, but if we take out the emotion, if we take out the special interests, if we take out the biases that we all have as we look at our country, I think we can see through and say, you know, in the final analysis, history is going to show that the United States was a much greater force for good than it has been for evil in our world. And yes, of course, it's mixed. We would be foolish to say that it is all one thing or all another thing, because in this life, nothing is all one thing or another thing. Everything is a mixture. And if we as people of faith who have talked so long and have, you know, at least given lip service to wanting to become spiritually aware enough to be able to occupy liminal space, and if you haven't heard that term before, we've been prattling on about it, but it, it talks about staying on the threshold, staying in the doorway, staying between the opposites, between the worlds, between the horns of the paradox or the dilemma, so that we can actually see what is really there. When we are inside one camp or another, we can't see what's really going on. The camp closes in over ourselves. But to stay on the threshold, to stay in that space, to be able to see our country and praise it and celebrate it when it's doing something really well, and to criticize it and to look for improvement when it's not, but to not fall down one side or another so completely that we cannot see truth from where it's coming and not from where we expect it to be. This is something that I think we all need to think about and something we all need to do. And if more of us did that, I think we could start to rediscuss the issues that are at hand and not be so lost in the emotions that nothing ever gets through except the insults and the epithets. Today is about celebrating. This weekend, 4th of July, is about celebrating our country. The 246th anniversary of what? Do you know what the 4th of July is really celebrating? Okay, you're going to get a history lesson here. 
I love this stuff. I hope that you can sit through it at least. You know, is it the birth of the United States? I mean, that's what we typically say. Is it the signing of the Declaration of Independence? Is it the start of the revolution? What is it that we're actually celebrating on the 4th of July? Because actually it's none of those things. In case you were wondering, the revolution actually started a year before. On April 19, 1775, the Revolutionary War began at Lexington and Concord. You know, that's the one if by land and two if by sea and Paul Revere and all that kind of stuff. So the fighting began on April 19, 1775. And at that time, there were very few colonists who wanted to separate from England. They didn't want that. My gosh, separating from England, can you imagine? You are connected to one of the world's greatest superpowers, and to separate from them forcibly, these people weren't fools. They knew exactly what they were going to be in for. What they wanted to do was reestablish the rights, the same rights that a citizen of England had that they as colonists didn't. The kingdom was using them in ways that it wouldn't use its own citizens. So they wanted those rights, but they didn't want to separate, and yet the war made the separation inevitable. There was no way they could come back from that. So after a year of fighting, finally on April 12th, 1776, North Carolina was the first colony, the first state, to authorize independence in the Continental Congress. And then a month later, on May 15th, Virginia authorized independence. And then three weeks after that, on June 7th, the Virginia delegates offered a resolution of independence to Congress to vote on. <coughs> but that resolution was delayed. And on June 11th, Congress authorized a committee to draft a statement of independence. What was this independence about and what was it for? They wanted that statement in order to be able to vote on the resolution. And so they selected three men, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams to be on this committee that would write the Declaration of Independence. Wouldn't you like to be on that committee? Now, in reality, it was Jefferson who really wrote the, the declaration. The other two men kind of worked in an editorial capacity and were helping. And get this, Thomas Jefferson was 33 years old at this time. 33 when he wrote this document. It's kind of amazing when you think about the compression of, of lifespans in, you know, once it's only 246 years ago. And so they go away and they're doing their work. And on July 1st, they're presented with the rough draft of Thomas Jefferson, and nine states endorsed it on July 1st. The next day, on July 7th, that number was up to 12, and New York abstained from that vote. So that on July 4th, Jefferson's rough draft was adopted and approved by Congress, and that's what we're celebrating. Nobody signed it. It was just a rough draft. If you have the little insert, take a look. The image down there is a picture of Jefferson's actual rough draft that was adopted and approved on July 4th, 1776. And I love this. I mean, this is his actual handwriting and all of his crossouts and all the insertions. And you can just see his thought process going on as he's writing this thing. 246 years ago, horse and buggies and muskets, a different world from ours, and yet we can sit here and read his handwriting. Well, unless you're a millennial, and then you can't read cursive, so. <laughs> but, oh, thanks, son. But, but this, is, this is what connects us. I love this. The only thing that really changes in humankind is the technology. 
people stay the same. And our language is essentially the same these last 250 years. And you can see it right there in uh, Jefferson's draft. So on July 4th, that draft was adopted. On the next day, July 5th, then New York came on board and also adopted it. On the 19th of July, Congress authorized the draft to be engrossed. Now, what that means is that it is taken, it is proofread, make sure everything's in place, and then someone with really good handwriting back in that day would have to write it out. And the guy that they got for this was Timothy Matlack. And I don't know if you ever heard of Timothy Matlack. You know, nobody's heard of Timothy Matlack. He was a brewer and a beer bottler before the war. You know, it's just kind of interesting, these things, right? But during the revolution, he was thrust into the fore, both militarily and administratively, and he became a very important figure in the, the revolution itself, and he had really good handwriting, and he became a clerk. And so they hired him to do this engrossing. So the copy that you see is actually Matlack's handwriting which looks like beautiful calligraphy and has become a font, now I understand, an actual font that you can use in your computer. That all is stuff you get for free. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. On August 2nd, the engrossed copy of the Declaration of Independence was presented to Congress and was signed by those who were present, but not everybody was there. And so the signing went on as people were able to come and sign the document, and the final signature didn't get put down until the next year in 1777. So here's the thing. You know, we like to imagine that the beginnings of things, and we like to imagine history in a very tidy and neat way. I think it's because we're used to watching half-hour-and-hour shows on TV that all get tied up with a bow in that period of time, and we want it to look that way. But see, truth is much messier than that, and we have to acknowledge that. The truth sometimes doesn't conform with our imaginings. Now, Jesus is often viewed as a revolutionary. I see him as a micro-revolutionary, though I don't believe that he was a social revolutionary. I don't believe that he was trying to change systems and society. He was doing something very different. He was trying to change hearts, individual hearts. Absolutely revolutionary. To change a person's heart from where we normally are as we live this physical life to something that is living in kingdom, the way Jesus understood that term, is nothing short of complete revolution and transformation, but it's micro. So when did this Christian revolution begin, this, this church revolution that we talk about sometimes? Was that at Jesus' birth? Is that when it began? Was it at his baptism, the beginning of his ministry? Was it at Calvary, when he was crucified? Was it at the resurrection? Was it at Pentecost? See, like Americans, these colonists, 250 years ago, Jesus was not pursuing separation from Judaism. That's not what he was after. He was working within Judaism. He said that explicitly. I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. That's what he was all about. Just like Luther. Martin Luther wasn't trying to separate from the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. Jesus wanted to reform Judaism. Bring the hearts of the children back to the Father, is the way the prophets put it. This is a very different proposition. Exactly what the colonists were trying to do before the war began. But it was the British and the Jewish and the Catholic leaders who made that impossible with their hardened resistance they made separation inevitable. They created it. Even when these revolutionaries didn't want it, they just wanted change. Now, most Christian scholars will say that the church began at Pentecost because that was the full impact of the resurrection. And when 
the followers really were able to boldly go forth. But I think we'll find that the truth is messier, as we have said before. You know, there really was no church at this time. In the first century, there was no church as we would recognize a church. There was really no church in the second century as we would recognize a church. For at least 150 years, and probably the first 250, the church was an underground movement. They were being actively persecuted by Rome, and so they had to operate in the dark. They had to operate away from the seat of power. It was a movement, and it was slowly changing Roman culture, slowly changing Roman religion. But a revolution, the way we think of it, that wasn't the intent, at least, of those who were following Jesus at that time and were part of this Jesus movement, followers of the way. The intent for them was to change individuals from the inside out, not society from the top down. That is not what they were trying to do. And in fact, when that did occur in the fourth century, when Constantine made the first moves to put Christianity first on the map, make it an, an, an endorsed religion in the Roman Empire, and put it on the road to the, by the end of the fourth century to become the state religion of Rome, that's when everything went sideways. That's when the wheels went off the, the cart. That's when the desert fathers and mothers left the Roman Empire and went out into the wildernesses, into the deserts of Egypt and Judea and Arabia, because the church, as far as they were concerned, in terms of what they were trying to accomplish interiorly, was unrecognizable to them at that point. Joined with Roman power, now establishing absolute orthodoxy to which if you didn't adhere, you were killed, exiled, all of your belongings taken. They were acting just like the Roman Empire, which had been persecuting the church, had acted before them. And this is when they went out to try to find their faith again, to try to find what was making sense to them. The desert monks, the desert fathers and mothers, were working their own interior revolution, following as best they could this pure way of Jesus. And metaphorically, fighting the demons and the dragons, right, of their own inner self. That was a hard-fought battle, but one that was unseen by anybody else, all interior. But even though I believe that Jesus is showing us how and inviting us along the way to fight this interior revolution. Still, the parallels that exist between the macro and the micro can be instructive for us. What happens in the macro mirrors and maps out what happens in the micro and vice versa. Initially in the Old Testament, you'll read over and over again that Israel is understood and Israel's journey with God is understood as the journey of one person. Israel is often anthropomorphized as God's child, as God's son, as God's daughter, one person. Because the responses and the journey of groups and nations mirror the individual interior responses that we have and the journey that we need to take. So if we want to fight the interior revolution to spiritual liberty, spiritual liberty, which to a Jew, an ancient Jew, was salvation, not entrance into heaven later in the afterlife, but liberty, freedom from fear, 
right here, right now. The ability to act and love as God acts and loves right here, right now. That was their salvation. To fight that interior revolution to that kind of liberty, what can we learn from our national revolution that can help us along that way? What I wanted to do is just read a few paragraphs from the Declaration of Independence and take a look at how that parallels with the journey that we're trying to take. Because Jefferson hit on some archetypal themes here. He hit on the crux of the matter. And it is in your inserts if you want to follow along. I don't think John is going to be able to get that up on the screens. But the Declaration of Independence in Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Don't you wish people still talked that way? God, that is just poetic prose and just amazing. The clarity of it, the vocabulary, the intelligence just comes through 250 years later. So what's going on in this paragraph? First, it assumes something. It assumes that the political bands that he's talking about that connect the colonies to England are not divinely instituted. They are not destined and they're not indisputable. So you have to understand that in the climate of the times, Western European Christianity had come up with a theological premise of divine right of kings. And I don't know if you've heard that before, but basically what, is it, what it says is, is that God institutes the kings and the rulers, all of them. And so as such, every king, every queen, derives his or her power from God. And since he or she does, it is absolutely indisputable. And if you do dispute it, it is as if you are disputing God himself. That's blasphemy, and that's a bad thing for you, right? This divine right of kings is what was prevalent all throughout Western Europe, and all of these kingdoms that were the colonizers of the rest of the world through the colonial period. But what happened in the American Revolution and the French Revolution was to be the first ones to dispute that and say, no. This power doesn't come from God directly. It comes from the people who consent to be governed. It's a very different thing. It's just like Jewish law when Jesus was talking about it. He said, hey, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The people don't exist to just be slaves to the law. The law exists to help the people, to guide them where they need to go, and to hold the community together in a way that everyone can survive and thrive. Now, as far as personal, what is holding you in place? Think about this. These political bands that he's talking about. What bands are holding you in place in the relationships that you have, in the job that you have, living arrangements maybe, group affiliations? Are they serving all parties equally well? Or are they just familiar? Has it just always been like this? Even your attitudes and your beliefs that holds you in place, that may limit you from other understandings to be able to see something different, are they still serving the good? 
Should they be dissolved at this point? Not irresponsibly, but if you take a look at them and you actually question them, just like we're questioning our country right now, should they be dissolved? And how hard will that be to dissolve them? Which is the question that you need to ask yourself, counting the cost and all. But this is what Jefferson is saying in this first paragraph. And because there are human rights that do derive directly from the laws of nature and from the God who created nature, he launches into the second paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. And to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Self-evident truths that all are created equal. And I know what you're probably thinking, you know. Back then, women weren't equal. People of color, indigenous people, and slaves weren't equal. And yet they're saying all men were created equal. But in the culture of their time, this was their reality. They're making a statement, I think, that preceded the actual realization of that. Here, 250 years later, we're not perfect by any means, but we are a lot closer. Women can vote. You can even vote for another 100, 100 years after this document was signed. But I think the idea was there. All men are created equal. They couldn't affect it and hold the union together at that time, even if they wanted to. But to state your goal and your intention and your beliefs precedes the acting out of it. And I think that is what is happening here. This self-evident truth that all are created equal, all endowed with unalienable rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It means you cannot alienate these rights. What does that mean, to alienate? Now, it means to estrange. It means to turn off, to divide from, to distance from, to isolate, to cut off, to transfer. All those things are this idea of alienating. But these rights are un alienable. And the state exists to protect these rights and only has power because the people give it. And when the state fails to protect people, abuses them, uses them, the people have a right to abolish that government. Interiorly, for each one of us, each of us needs to protect our own unalienable rights from ourselves, from our limiting beliefs, from the trauma of the past, from the core beliefs that are set in place because of the traumas in the past and the way we grew up, all those things are affecting our unalienable rights to life and to liberty, to kingdom, as Jesus would have it. When do we know that it is time to change? When do we know that it's time to spark the revolution and bring it on? Jefferson says, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, 
all experience have shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. What a line that is. When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. A revolution should never be taken lightly because you know it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to cause much more disturbance and destruction before it can get better. But when it's the only way that it can get better and you've determined that as best you can, then there is no other course of action is what Jefferson is saying. Every single one of us has and will suffer injustice and tyranny as long as is humanly possible Maybe it's just the inertia in us. It certainly is the fear in us, the fear of the unknown of what a real revolution will bring. But we will suffer as long as possible before we will make a move. And a lot of this is good sense. A lot of this is prudence, of course. But when do we actually make that move? When do we actually do this? We all need to hit that Calvary moment. That moment when it seems like everything is lost, as the first followers of Jesus must have felt, before the revolution looks less frightening, before the transformation, before the way of Jesus in all of its deconstruction, in everything that it's asking us to question, looks less frightening, less risky, and that the pain that we will endure is for a greater good than the status quo could ever provide. This is how it is in our personal lives. This is what happens. But if we see the better path, we always see it, or we see the dead end of the path that we're on long before we're ready to change or ready to repent because we fear the revolution and we fear the unknown. And so we would rather suffer for a little bit longer If you think about it, it's sort of a form of spiritual codependency, right? We will enable and we will preserve the status quo, however dysfunctional it may be in our personal lives or even in our social lives, simply for the fear of losing what we have. It's kind of the devil we know is better than the devil we don't, one of those kind of things. We tell ourselves, you know, this is probably as good as it gets. We tell ourselves we don't deserve more, maybe. We tell ourselves we wouldn't survive a revolution if we actually started one. We wouldn't survive the transformation. There's so many things that we believe down deep that limit our ability to actually make the first steps toward Jesus' way, to go where he is showing us. We can go and experience the kind of unity and connection that is the kingdom. It's like the Hebrews when Moses finally gets them out of slavery, right? And they're crying over not having their leeks or their onions anymore in the wilderness. Remember that particular little story? It's like Lot's wife who gets airlifted out of Gomorrah and Sodom before the fire comes, but she's looking over her shoulder and is turned into a pillar of salt. 
She was dead inside. She was still yearning for what was. She couldn't go forward. She couldn't go back. She was nowhere. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Talking about the same thing. Our fear limits us and keeps us from moving forward with abandon into the radical place that Jesus is trying to take us, into this interior revolution. What convinced the colonists to revolt against a global superpower? What finally put them over the edge? Generations of abuse. And everything that they tried only hardened the resistance. Everything remained unchanging. They tried everything within the status quo to secure the rights that they needed as people, only to realize this hardening resistance from the king. What will convince us to revolt against our own spiritual codependence? What will convince us to engage a path that we know will be harder than staying put, at first at least, for the promise of new life, for the promise of freedom from fear? Jesus was a personal interior revolutionary, and he himself risked everything to pursue his unalienable rights. And what rights were those? Well, he called his rights Abba. He called his rights kingdom, which included life and liberty and happiness as contentment and connection. And then there was the ultimate unalienable right that he talked about constantly, which was simply God's love. This degreeless love that can't be measured, can't be earned, can't be lost, can't be alienated, cut off, divided, estranged in any way. Unalienable right that we won't know that we have until we follow Jesus down this path. And Jesus did set his followers on this same path. And a few did make it. But it's always a few, isn't it? A few made it to this interior revolution. And they fought their interior battles, especially from Calvary to Pentecost, in that period from where they thought they had lost everything to when they had the full impact of the resurrection come upon themselves. They broke through to freedom from their limitations. But then, from there, as the Jesus movement grew, as the church grew and became an actual institution, it was no longer revolutionary anymore. Now it was teaching conformity. Now it was teaching passivity. Now it was teaching security, the exact opposite of everything that Jesus pointed out that was the hallmark of his way. Now everything is turned on its head. And it lasted that way for a thousand years. And a thousand years later, at the height of the institution, at the height of the Western Christian Church's power, there's a little man in Italy who rediscovered his unalienable rights, God's love and freedom. And he started his own personal interior revolution and cast off the comforts and the privilege of his familiar life. And of course, I'm talking about Francis of Assisi. By living his personal revolution, he started a social revolution through his followers. As they followed him, as they gathered in community, as they began to affect the larger community around them with this pure following of Jesus' way, 
They started a social revolution for a time. And that's the key, for a time. Because as the Franciscans became an institution, they changed as well. A little bit from Morris West who writes, a man like St. Francis of Assisi, for instance, what does he really mean? A complete break with the pattern of history. A man born out of due time. A sudden, unexplained revival of the primitive spirit of Christianity. The work he began still continues, but it's not the same. The revolution is over. The revolutionaries have become conformists. The little brothers of the little poor man are rattling alms boxes in the railway square or dealing in real estate to the profit of the order. Of course, that isn't the whole story. They teach, they preach, they do the work of God as best they know, but it is no longer a revolution. And I think we need one now. Francis lived his revolutionary life, but his following inevitably became an institution. All human communities do at some point. It created its own conformity to which people then needed to conform. The truth is every single generation and every person on earth must be willing to engage their own revolution or they will live under the tyranny of fear and become their own institution and conform to that. All that keeps us passive. It keeps us spiritually codependent. How are we going to do this? How are we going to become spiritually aware? How are we going to become aware to the point that we can really occupy consciously that liminal space and be able to see clearly what is happening in our camp and every other camp around us? See ourselves as we are, just as we were talking about trying to see our country as it really is? See ourselves as we really are which is the best definition of humility you can come up with, to see us as we really are, as we really relate to each other and to God, to be able to praise and celebrate the good things about our lives and how we are living them, but to be able to cr criticize and question everything until the desire for freedom outweighs and overtakes the fear of the unknown of going there in the first place. Richard Rohr puts it this way. It is said that Francis's great prayer, which he would spend whole nights praying, was, who are you, God, and who am I? Contemplative prayer helps us to live into these questions. As we observe our minds in contemplation, we first recognize how many of our thoughts are defensive, oppositional, paranoid, self-referential, or in some way violent. Until we recognize how constant that mind is, we have no motivation to let go of it. Contemplation teaches us to say, that feeling is not me. I don't need that opinion to define me. I don't need to justify myself or blame someone else. Gradually, we learn to trust the wounds and the failures of life, which are much better teachers than our supposed successes. It's all a matter of letting go and, letting and getting out of the way. Teresa of Lisieux would call it surrender and gratitude, letting my mind accept and surrender to the mystery that I am to myself. It doesn't need to quickly categorize this mystery as sinful, wrong, evil, or as good, meritorious, and wonderful. It just is. When I can no longer hold myself up, 
I fall into the mystery of God and let God hold me. When I no longer name myself right or wrong, I let someone else, in capitals, name me. When I allow God to keep revealing the deeper mystery of mercy and grace and love to me, I don't categorize or hold God too easily, too quickly, as if I understand God, as if I've got God in my pocket. Those who allow God to reveal God's self are the very ones who know that God is love. They know that God is not a harsh judge or conditional lover, that God's love is an endless sea of mercy and unconditional acceptance. The deeper you go, the more you fall into the mystery. As you fall into the mystery of an ever-loving God, you are able to accept the mystery of yourself. And as you accept the mystery of yourself, you fall into the mystery of God. You don't know, and it doesn't matter which comes first. People who love God love themselves and everybody else. People who love themselves and everybody else also love God. When our desire finally overtakes our fear, outweighs it, we become willing to let go, to tear down the institution that we have created in our own lives, the state that we're in, We become willing to suffer the hardships of the revolution, of the transformation, of the deconstruction, of the descent before the ascent to get the long-term freedom of spirit. So how about you? Are you feeling that there must be more to life? More life? More liberty? More happiness? More contentment? Have you tried everything in your status quo? to try to get there and still feeling unfulfilled, feeling that there is more, that there's one thing left at least? Are you tired of being afraid, anxious, worried, obsessive, controlling? Are you hearing yourself always defending yourself and your beliefs? Are you always debating? Does it seem like you're always debating? Are you often annoyed, angry, offended, indignant at others, at life, at our country? If you are, you're getting close to where the desire for freedom from all of that overtakes the fear of the unknown. You're close to the revolution, your own interior revolution. As those things build up, that risky step looks more and more possible, more and more attractive as you go. How do you break through? What sparks, actually sparks, that interior revolution? Which you're going to do while keeping your life in place. I'm not talking about blowing everything up in your life. This is interior, okay? Just so I can be clear here. You don't have to go move to Sudan or anything like that. You're going to do it right here in San Juan Capistrano or wherever the heck you are. And this individual path will be different for each one of us. But again, maybe the 4th of July, maybe Thomas Jefferson can give us a little bit of shape. Let's read the very end of the Declaration. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, 
do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Imagine for a second King George reading that and the vein sticking out in his neck. You see, that's as bold as it gets. Ah, oh, that's as clear and unequivocal as it gets. There's no walking back from a statement like that. There is no wiggle room. That is what it looks like to be all in. That's what it looks like to leave nothing on the table. This is what boldness looks like. When we become as convinced as they were, as Jesus and Francis were, of our inability to continue as we are, right? Of our unalienable right to God's love. Then we can be as bold. Then we can be willing to undergo the revolution of transformation. Then we will all look different in detail in each one of our journeys. But each one of us will have the same shape and each one's journey will have the same effect we will start to look the same in our love, in our connection with each other. And once we know that we know that we hold this unalienable right to a love that we can never lose, that's when the revolution begins. May it begin in each one of us if it hasn't already. And if it has, let's kick it up a notch. Let's pray. Father, even as we see our country more and more for what it is, as flawed as it may be, we thank you for the covering that it gives us as a people. We thank you for the start that it had, stating things that we're still trying to realize, stating principles and truths that we're still looking for in our own society. But thank you that it's there in print that we can look back on, that we can remind ourselves of, that this is why we exist and this is what we are looking for. Thank you for our nation and everyone who has protected it these 246 years so that we can sit here in this kind of freedom and say what we say. But most of all, Father, help us to look past political forms to the only power that can really sustain us and can take us where we want to go. That is you, Lord. We want to be connected deeply to you and to each other and see our country and all our communal forms as tools 
for making that union as deep and as binding as it possibly can be. So thank you, Father, for everything that you've given us here on this 4th of July. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.